Welcome to Misinformation, hosted by Rebecca Jones and produced by Big Mouth Media. This weekly podcast with Florida COVID whistleblower Rebecca Jones dives into the world of disinformation and how it's hurting America and democracy. Now, here she is, Misinformational. everyone. You are joining Rebecca Jones, aka Misinformational, and Dr. Cindy Banyai for a special, shorter version of something we did yesterday live on Twitter. And that right. is my inaugural rundown on the Chernobyl accident, which occurred April 26, 1986. And as always, joining me is Dr. Banyai. How are you today, Cindy? Hey, good. Yeah. And for those of you that missed the Twitter space last night, we had a little bit of technical problems, but it was overall a really good opportunity to talk and connect with folks. And we're hoping to do it again sometime soon, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it was my first time ever hosting, only I think my third time ever participating in one of those Twitter spaces. So I had a few technical snafus and had to restart it. Third time was the charm, although it didn't record the conversation that we had for over an hour. Yes. (laughs) We are giving a brief recap on a few of the things that we discussed then and adding, of course, additional exclusive conversation for you all because we love you so much. And if you're not subscribed, please do now. It is one of the ways that you can support independent media and journalism people like me who do not get paid to promote products during their podcast because we do this for the right reasons. Right. It's not like we're Alex Jones and trying to like get you to buy a thousand tons of pre-prepared prepper meal products or he sells like vitamins and shit. We're not trying to hawk those types of things. We are selling- We're hawking truth over here. Yeah, we're hawking truth. We are trying to make sure that we have space because that's one of the ongoing conversations here in the growing fascist state of Florida is that the local media is often too afraid to put out diverse opinions. And I experienced it during my congressional campaign. And so did Rebecca during hers as well. And so we had to start our own media company and do our own shows to get the message out that we are trying to let people know about what's really going on and the misinformation and disinformation that surrounds us. And so this is This podcast specifically looks at disinformation. We say that we're dismantling the disinformation nation. So what we are principally concerned with is media bias and framing and reporting and coordinated mis- and disinformation, especially in the realm of public health, disasters, politics, pretty much everything that you ever see trending and how those disinformation stories were born and how they spread and how we can better combat those things. And there's really few examples of the deadliness of disinformation than the example of the Chernobyl nuclear accident in what is now Ukraine at the time, the USSR in 1986, which is of course, before I was born. I was Um, here. Yeah. (laughs) That was sick. So I was like not super into geopolitics at the time. Yeah. So it was actually very interesting to me to go back and look at the American conversation of what was happening in Chernobyl at the time, which was a new kind of avenue I explored because as a geography student through my bachelor's, my master's and my PhD coursework, we studied Chernobyl like 
the Bible and in Sunday school because it was a disaster, which geography is singularly framed with dealing with, and also because of the potential environmental impacts long-term that posed. We always focused on the actual accident itself. What happened? Who knew what when? How did they prepare? What was the the radius of the exclusion zone and why was that decision made things like the logistics but looking at the media perspective of it too especially in american press thank the new york times for having digitized all those records from the 80s it is quite fascinating the very first mention of the chernobyl accident in the new york times was on the front page on the far right column three days after it happened and inside there was a whole page dedicated to it but the general article's tone was that, okay, we have one Harvard scientist who says this could be really bad, but on the whole, we don't think that this will ever impact anything outside of the immediate area, and it doesn't seem to be that great of a concern. Based on all the other experts we talked to and securities people, of course, that was not true. That is the other thing about breaking news, especially when it involves everything from our lives. <laughs> yeah, everything from police, governments, any authority figure being the sole source of information for something right. that is breaking inherently is going to have flaws in how that story is told. It's like why the media at least temporarily learned after George Floyd's death not to just cite police reports as mm. de facto true accounts of things that have yeah there's things that have happened because if you've never read the george floyd official police report you really should if it doesn't make you outraged i think you maybe need to read up on what really happened i don't know but it should make you outraged and it was reported on exactly how the police issued that report and of course infamously ended with no officers were harmed which is the worst insult that you could oh god it's so awful but at any rate the only source of information that was being provided was the USSR. And even at that time, they had quite the legacy of controlling information and not being honest about it. There was also a movement within the United States at that period of time because of the Three Mile Island incident, which was in Pennsylvania years before, to temper caution about the nuclear industry. So both of these nuclear disasters happening there was already a fear of a potential nuclear meltdown anywhere in the world. And it was particularly fresh in Americans' minds because of Three Mile Island, which was a partial nuclear meltdown. And how that happened seems so ridiculous to probably to people today. They, It essentially boiled down to somebody was cleaning a pipe and they turned off the wrong thing. And that happened to coincide with all of these other bad things, very much like Chernobyl. And that led to a partial nuclear meltdown. So people were becoming right. very scared around the nuclear energy development as it was. And then you here you have the USR that's having some kind of nuclear disaster. But the New York Times makes it very clear they don't really know anything about it other than what the Russian state TV said and what some of these experts were speculating. And it was much, much worse than that. And we know that because of several people who eventually came forward, but particularly one man who was a nuclear physicist at the time and was charged with overseeing the entire scientific aspect of the response. And his name was Valery Legasov. And uh, he and one of the statesmen, Boris, oh boy, 
I'm never going to get Russian names right. And I always feel awful. I should really be better as a person about that. But the Boris, I'll just call him Boris, and Legasov were the two most influential people in handling that response. And while it is not an example to ever lead by, especially as far as a public health crisis and mm -hmm. public communications and government transparency, they did save the entire Northern Hemisphere, or at least large swaths of Europe in that proximity from being uninhabitable for as many as 10,000 years. Mm. And they did it very quickly, quite quietly, not by choice, but with a veracity that really demands respect for the scientists, not just Legasov, but the whole team that worked on it. Legasov, however, is a very complicated figure. And until very recently, most notably because of the HBO docuseries, which doesn't mm -hmm. get everything right, um, but it is a stunning five-episode miniseries that is largely considered to be the best television series of all time. So if you haven't seen it, it's worth the five episodes. It's very unnerving and it will stay with you forever. But uh, until then, his kind of image was very obscure. So he was celebrated internationally within the two years after the nuclear accident for managing this response and managing to actually minimize any potential further catastrophe. And there were many points at which they faced much worse catastrophes than what had initially started. And uh, the USR had also blamed the entire event on operator error, essentially arguing that the three chief engineers and managers in charge, plus two of the then dead crewmen for putting the conditions in place that caused the reactor to explode, which was a, okay, not a lie, but missed one very critical piece of information, one extremely important piece of information. They did create the conditions, these extreme conditions in which if it had not occurred, the explosion would not have occurred. Okay. At the same time, they did so fully believing that no matter what happened inside of this reactor, there was a button they could push, basically your emergency shutoff button. They called it AZ-5 that would stop the reactor immediately. And you could, doesn't matter how high or low the energy is, boom, push the button, everything's fine, it's safe. It would be expensive, everything would have to be shut down and then restart, but it was a fail safe. In reality, that's not what that button did. Pushing that button caused the explosion. Mm. And essentially that's because pushing the button forced all of the control rods within the core to go out at once to stop the heat from building up and it would immediately just freeze the whole thing. The thing that kind of fuels this type of RMBK reactor, and Russia, of course, is the only place that ever used these types of reactor. They were the only country that didn't fully enrich their uranium. They were the only country that didn't have shielding or containment structures around their nuclear facilities in case something like this happened. So there were a lot of corners being cut in the USSR's nuclear program, which was so critical to their development of the Soviet Union that they weren't going to just stop it. So they build it very recklessly. But what the, as they call it in the HBO show, this beautiful dance between the hot and the cold, the thing that really makes these atoms that are flying at an incredible speed actually have to collide to create energy is the graphite inside of the core. Because it was cheap and unbeknownst to most of the people who were in operation, the tips of the control rods 
were coated in graphite. So only in the circumstance if there's an out of control runaway nuclear accident building inside the core of a reactor and all of the control rods are completely out would this ever happen but that was exactly what happened they had pulled all the control rods out all the way out so when they hit the button the first thing that they did instead of putting in control rods that slow down heat they put in graphite which accelerates it causing an explosion that of course ripped open the core and is what is now the Chernobyl disaster. So there was a big part of it that was operated error. Certainly not though on the part of the two men who died, who went down to manually release the control valves to keep water pumping, knowing full well that they would die if they did that. And they did, they died within a few weeks. It's easy to blame dead people. Yeah. Dead people don't refute your claims. Yes. And the chief engineers were certainly culpable. They cut corners. They lied about completing their safety tests many times before. This was their fourth attempt to do this. And it was a safety test. That's the conditions that were created that ended up with the nuclear explosion was a safety test. And were very adamant to get their promotions within the USR and overlooked some dangerous things. And so there was culpability there, but certainly not on the operators because as they emphasize both in the historical accounts and in the fictionalized historical accounts at HBO, the two operators did everything right. Mm -hmm. They followed every protocol. One of them was 25 years old, put in charge of a nuclear safety test at two o'clock in the morning, never having overseen such a test ever in his life. And when they saw that the reactor was jumping in reactivity, they hit the shutoff button. No one knew, not the operators, not the chief engineers, not the workers, that pushing that button could cause an explosion. And they didn't know because that information was specifically hidden from them. Hmm. It was kept from them. It was in a paper that no one was allowed to check out from any library ever that was like Hmm. 90% redacted because it would have forced them to have to retrofit all of their nuclear things if they the nuclear industry, even within the USSR, were to find out that there is a situation, an extreme situation in which they could cause a nuclear explosion by hitting the shut emergency shutoff button. Yeah, it seems like a pretty vital piece of information. <laughs> the condi- and that's where you come in with the other emphasis is that these were extreme conditions that the state of the reactor was in when this happened. And again, they had failed this three times. Their fourth try was April 26, 1986. And so this was something that this plant had struggled with under the management of the same people it was always under. And without those extreme conditions, without all but like, I think five of the control rods being completely withdrawn from the reactor and the reactor going from a complete state of low energy where they couldn't get it to move up at all to basically what's without getting super technical xenon poisoning. And then the balance being swung in the complete different direction and jumping up to, I think, 32,000 megawatts when it was built to generate uh, Mm 3,200 before it hit the button to turn it off, which was the right thing to do. They just didn't know. And you can't really hold them responsible because everything they did, everything they planned on doing, they did believing that if they screwed up, there was always a failsafe. That's what that button was for. Either way, three men were convicted and they were sent to 10 years of prison labor. 
the person who was actually in the control room didn't live to see that out. The other two who were not did. One of them went right back to work at a nuclear plant in USR after he got out. So they clearly took that seriously. Gorbachev wrote in one of his books that he thinks that the entire collapse of the USR goes back to Chernobyl. And so this was devastating for the USR. It was incredibly embarrassing once people found out the truth. And they only ever did because of Valery Legasov. Yeah. When the year after Chernobyl, and not even the year after, I think it was six months after, the USR basically threatened everyone into testifying in front of the International Energy Agency that this was operator error. Mm-hmm. And they did. He lied. He lied to a lot of people. He lied probably more times than he could count to save himself, to save his family, to save his friends, to save his ass. He was human. But when the trials came for those three men in front of Russian nuclear physicists who were there to review the conditions that created the explosion, he told the truth. And for that, even though he was internationally celebrated and loved by the whole world, and there's a monument to the state if you ever feel like going to Ukraine post-war or in the exclusion zone near Pripyat where this was built, which is now a tourist destination, which is super weird was rather there's a monument to the men who saved the world and he they they really did he did more than anybody saved the world and uh, despite that he got nothing but resistance within his field he had a lot of co-workers in academia and that is a very bureaucratic place and petty and click uh, <laughs> from place to begin with trust me who were very jealous of him He was denied a spot on a, I think it was like a technology safety review board that he wanted to create the day before the anniversary in which he killed himself. He, his life was completely changed forever. And despite being celebrated and people knowing what he did, they made the image of him so complicated that he himself could not find footing ever again. And so Two years after the accident, he killed himself. And before he did, he recorded a series of tapes going through in, I've tried to make my way through them. Some of them are very dense technical language. I'm not a nuclear scientist. So I follow as closely as I can. And then I'm like, I need to Google like a hundred different things and go down a rabbit hole before I understand this one sentence. So I'm going to just assume that he's right and move on. But isn't the HBO movie based off those tapes? Yes, it is. Or the HBO series or whatever? Yes, it is. And yeah. they, not that Chernobyl needs any drama added to it, but they do dramatize some of it. The, I think the very first word or phrase from the show is what is the cost of lies? Now, that does not actually appear anywhere in his tapes, at least not through the translation that I saw because I searched for it. But it's certainly a question that he circled around a lot. And he started recording these before he decided to kill himself. This was These were, I think, eight tapes, double-sided, hours and hours of technical information. So he'd been planning on coming forward about it for a while. But by the end of it, there is a very, there's a very different man. And in the HBO show, they try to illustrate that by ending the show with the question, what is the cost of truth? And that's, he's been one of my personal heroes since I first learned about him in college and Luckily, I had a professor who was obsessed with nuclear exclusion zones and in my hazards class. So we went all over the gossip and how they called him insubordinate because he kept 
pushing right. back on things like they only made the exclusion zone, I think, 20 miles and it should have been at least 50. And they they needed certain things to be done and they were done in a way that wasn't quite the way they needed to be. And he would cause problems. That's how it was described is he caused problems. He bucked the chain of command, often yep. going to leaders without permission because he wanted something done the way that it should be done. And he didn't understand the pecking order of the party there. But I related even back then so much with that. <laughs> it's like it because when you're in a disaster response type situation, whether it's a hurricane or a nuclear catastrophe that was truly unprecedented on the on that planet at that time, there isn't time for bullshit. It's there are lives on the line here. Whatever the hell is going on, stop it and do the job. If you don't, lives will be lost. Yeah. Now, my kind of experiences with disaster response were very different because Lagos have had to make decisions that led directly to the deaths of tens of thousands of men. You know what they were called the, oh, what did they call them? I just blanked on that. But they were the people who came and basically dug up the earth and then buried it under itself, the liquidates mm -hmm. to bury the radiate radioactive ground underneath itself. And there was, I think, over 700,000 men who were conscripted or drafted basically to do this. And they wow. knew when they did it that tens of thousands would die. And they did. But not according to the USSR. According to the USSR, only 31 people died because of Chernobyl. 31. Yeah. Worst nuclear catastrophe, way worse than the atomic bomb on this planet's history. And they say 31. And that's yes. exclusively the people who were at the site the day that it happened. The people who were operators and the firefighters and first responders. Sure. Which is obviously a lie because estimates are between 4,000 definitely did to we think it's more realistic that 90,000 did because mm -hmm. they didn't bother to track or keep up with any of the long-term health impacts. Sure. But even then I related to that. And especially now, I think I, I have answers to that, which I didn't have because I watched the series before I was famous or anybody knew who I was as a whistleblower. And I know what the cost of lies is. I think we've all come to understand the cost of lies, but I was always perplexed, per bleh, perplexed by the question of what is the cost of truth? And I remember thinking the first time, like, that doesn't make any sense as a question to end it on. And it costs your life. It costs everything. It, it costs his life. It costs his life. And it cost Dan Ellsberg's freedom. He was facing prison or the death penalty for treason. They ransacked his psychiatrist's office to try to make him seem crazy. They diminished his role at Rand in what kind of data he had access to and what his role was, which mm. oh, I don't know, sound familiar. At one point, they claimed he was just a data entry clerk. And I about lost my shit when I read that because I was like, oh my God, they said the same thing to me. And I don't even know what the hell a data entry clerk does. Isn't that what the computer does? But whatever. And, and Alexander Vindman and myself, that's the cost of truth. Yep. Is a person suffering their life over ended very few of us ever come back. Vinman might be one of these stellar examples of a person who managed to truly come out stronger and in a good, safe position, if safe is even the word you can use considering how many death threats him and Rachel get all the time. But people are the cost of truth. The, the people who are willing to tell the truth are the cost of truth. Right. And or the people who lose their lives because of the lies, too. One thing I just want to reel back and dig in on a little is the state of affairs with the Soviet Union at the time that this happened as well. The, they controlled the information and 
certain things happen when you build government structures in this way. It's authoritarian and there is no room for the truth. There's no room for people to be honest about issues and errors. And I think that is another example of what Chernobyl is really is poignant for. It shows that people knew that there were these fatal issues and they just kept getting passed around, right? Because nobody wanted to own up to it because you want to look good so that you can politically climb. And there was no incentive to tell the truth. It, there was an incentive to lie. And and then it gets exacerbated when the government itself is trying to save face in this capacity. And so they were willing to officially manipulate the truth and manipulate data and omit parts of the information from the public view to continue to hold on to power. Because yes. if people if people knew the truth, they would be out of power. And that's if they knew how incompetent they were, if they knew that they were running around with power plants that had a blow up switch instead of an off switch, right, then there would be some questions and people would uprise. And Dick and eventually the only reason that the USR did finally agree to retrofit the facilities and make improvements was because he killed himself. Wow. It wasn't until after he killed himself and it became so publicized and with his warnings that he issued upon his death that they could no longer avoid the questions of what are you doing to make sure this doesn't happen again? Because when you're doing something like blaming operating error or blame operator error, there's no question whatsoever about the safety of your entire nuclear facility design, which is part of the reason why they wanted to scapegoat those two young men who were dead. And so when he finally killed himself and his last act was to warn people, they couldn't hide it. They couldn't ignore it anymore. And only then did they decide to retrofit and to make improvements to safety. Yeah. And they just finished the what they call the sarcophagus for the nuclear reactor four that exploded in 2017. Yeah, a long time of it just being openly exposed. They lied about radiation levels. They lied about how many people would die. They're still lying about how many people did die. Just lie after lie. And there was this one person, not that he was the only one. There were other people who were involved who eventually came forward after he killed himself just so that the truth would be known. And it's just, it's really hard to look back at the suffering that man went through, especially in the last year of his life, knowing now everything that we know. And not wanting so badly to, to change that part of history and to keep that man alive. And it's just, when you're a whistleblower, you feel very isolated. That's intentional. They want you to feel disconnected and alone. It makes you weaker. Right. And I've struggled with who I'm going to be after all this is over <laughs> and uh, who I want to be when all of this is over, how my family is going to come out of this, which again has been very recently complicated question when okay. the state starts coming after your kids. And I also want to make sure people know that my kid is not the only kid they're coming after. The state of Florida did, the legislature did pass a law that legalized kidnapping of trans children from their parents, regardless of where you're from. So all, if you're visiting Disney World and your child is non-binary or even likes to dress up as the opposite gender, they can kidnap legally your children and take them from you. And you can be charged with a felony. 
Yeah, that's so, why Equality Florida put out the travel advisory. Yes. And the NAACP has a travel advisory as well. It's a sad yes. state of affairs. It is. And I try to, I think some of the ways that we make it through it, and this is something Dan Ellsberg once told me, is that you need to always remind yourself that it's bigger than you alone. But at the same time, if you quit, you're creating a void within that fight. And being symbols is a whole other thing. I think I could just write or talk about forever and how dangerous it is to become a symbol and how unfair yeah. it is to make people into symbols and yeah. the unrealistic expectations of asking somebody who's 31 years old and done TV for the first time ever six months ago and then finds herself doing it 10 times a day every single day to uphold the unrealistic expectations of said symbol. But that's for the book. So that's for the, <laughs> about that in the book. On Chernobyl, we're reminded that disinformation during disasters is incredibly deadly. Dr. Peter Hotez is one of my dearest friends. He's the head of tropical medicine, infectious disease, and childhood, child, what is it called? No, pediatrics at the University of Texas, Houston. And then he's also been nominated for the Nobel Prize in Medicine for his vaccinations programs, and he fights disinformation as well. He has a new book coming out very shortly about how disinformation, especially disinformation from Florida specifically, mm. costs so many lives during the pandemic than would have if they hadn't done that and that they did it intentionally, that it was well-funded, it was well-organized. Of course, Florida is again in the spotlight this week <laughs> because of the, I, I want to say that's explosive, <laughs> but at this point it's just duh, but the publicity around the state being caught doctoring critical research oh, yeah. on the safety of vaccines. Very quickly, essentially last October, the Florida Surgeon General, who his own employers advised against giving that job because of his fringe and anti-science beliefs, he made an official recommendation and the state followed suit, making its policy that children and young men should not be vaccinated because the risk of cardiac complications was so high for the COVID-19 vaccine. He was immediately condemned not only by like Dr. Hotez, but the CDC, the NIH, and every major research organization, AMA, saying that there is no evidence whatsoever to support this. Well, so he came up with this research paper of their own internal data, at which I said at the time, and we even talked about this on one of our previous podcast episodes, because remember, I printed it out and I had it like right here and we went through it, how like bullshit it was. But he said they had this research and that was used by people across the whole country to justify anti-vaccine policies and others. It turns out, yeah, they made it up. And it's even worse than just making it up because they did the analysis authentically the first time. And these were, of course, Ledepo didn't personally do this analysis. He ordered people like me to do it and found that the risk of cardiac complications for infection of COVID-19 was so astronomically high compared to that of just the vaccination without infection that it outweighed any possible perceived risk of getting the vaccination. So you should still get vaccinated. That was not the policy they wanted to enact. They wanted to justify advising against vaccination, even though he received a report from his own people using all of their data saying, no, if you're using the data, the recommendation should be absolutely for vaccination. So they went through and he not only personally removed any mention of the impact of COVID-19 infection on cardiac health, changed the language to make it seem like 
vaccination was of extremely high risk or unnecessary risk for young people and flat out lied about it being worse than infection itself, which was just a straight lie. Their data did not show that, but went through and had them delete all the unfavorable data from their analysis that changed the outcome of the results, which is a direct parallel to what I was ordered to do in May, in which all of our internal data said, no, we're not ready to reopen. And I was essentially ordered to change everything that we presented to the public to make it look like our internal data said, sure, it's safe. I, of course, refused to do that and got fired for it. And Uh, here we are. (laughs) And here we are. The Department of Health employees allowed this paper to go through. It was published. The policy was changed. And this was six months ago. In December, I heard from one of my sources at DOH that it was doctored. And that didn't surprise me. I was like, oh, really? You think that they're lying about the whatever? And earlier this month, the day after they came after my son, the news first broke that they were caught doctoring the report because an official complaint had been filed against them. I don't know why it took so many weeks for it to pick up on the national news circuit, but earlier this week, it was the dominating news for two, almost three days. And people are acting outraged, which is to me the most bizarre reaction to have because they're just doing what they've always been doing. In order to act outraged, you have to almost make the presumption that this is a new thing. This is the first time they've done it. And it's Okay, you can be outraged, maybe shocked. Shocked is not the appropriate reaction. You can be outraged. I'm outraged every time it happens. That's true. <laughs> so to be shocked or surprised that it happened is a bit ridiculous at this point because yeah. there's three years of documented lying on the part of DeSantis's health administration predating Dr. Demon Seaman. And so it, it's just at this point, the government lies, you guys. Especially when you have single party control of a government infrastructure, whether that's the right. USSR in 1986, or if it's the state of Florida and the GOP in right. 2013, 2023, aging myself here. That is what happens when you have an oppressive regime in which favoritism is paid to people who do their part. Yeah, give the favorable results. Yeah. That's exactly the point. There's if there's no checks and balances, if there's no opposition party, if the most important thing is maintaining control and the image that they want to present, right? And in the case of the COVID vaccine, they wanted to demonize the COVID vaccine and they wanted to make it look like everything was going fine in Florida. So they manipulated that information and they made it really difficult for the truth to get out. And I hope that through all of this, people get the message that transparency is good for people. (laughs) Okay. That's the whole thing. Transparency and accountability is good for the general population. So when you see regimes government officials, institutions start categorizing, categorizing certain pieces of information as national security, top secret, big deals that they can't let people know, we get into some pretty dodgy territory around whether or not something is good for people. Now, of course, we can say, okay, there's military secrets and the, I'm not personally somebody who's on the all the way transparency, but I'm pretty far over on the transparency scale because the more information that we have, the better able we're going to be able to decipher 
the truth and make a decision that's good for people. But when you have manipulation, which we have had in Florida, and I said this on our space, is that one of the things that drew me to Rebecca from the very beginning is that I have had experience with different databases in the state of Florida and seeing how they actively manipulate it. Now, I was coming as an outside entity, but there's manipulation in education data. There's manipulation in workforce data. There's manipulation in high school graduation rates. And it's all to make the state and these other government entities look good. And unless you're a data nerd like Rebecca and I, and you're knee deep in data day in, day out at the state level, how are you going to know? You're going to just know what they tell you. They're okay, great. But like third grade reading, for instance, in the state of Florida is not calculated based on whether or not students can read. It's a freaking, it's a scale. So always there's 50% of the state that's failing. And the reason they do that is so they can continue to get federal funding without actually having to prove whether or not students are achieving anything. And it's a manipulation. It's the only thing in the education metrics that's measured like that. And it's totally done for political purposes. And so that's why I could believe <laughs> very easily that somebody on the inside was told to take out data to make a different picture because I already knew that Florida had done this. And I think that we need to be skeptical of government. I don't think we should lose hope. That was something we went on and on last night as to whether yes. or not we should just throw everything out. I think that if we get people who are active and who want to make a change, that we can make a difference. But transparency is going to be necessary to keep people safe. Yeah, I'm more of the, I have lost all hope. No, I'm just kidding. Which is weird because I've been noted as being very naive and optimistic throughout all of this when I have every reason not to be. But there are many types of lies. And some are big and egregious, like doctoring vaccine reports, and some are more subtle. And the end result, it seems to be the same. It's chipping away at what is the reality that we live in to exist in a state of denialism that allows us to believe whatever we want to believe. And there's possibly no administration right now in the United States better at doing that than DeSantis. And he has things, or at least did, it seems to be very shaky at the moment. And certainly things are starting to fall apart and we hope that they continue to do that. But for a while there, DeSantis had mainstream media on his side because they, too, wanted to promote the things that DeSantis was promoting. Things like opening schools when it was absolutely not safe to do. I actually got called to do Jake Tapper's show in fall of 2020 because I ran the only COVID-19 reporting database with Google in the entire country for schools. And they asked me to just do a quick brief analysis with a few talking points for the show that night. And so I sent them to him and I got bumped, which is not unusual. Bumped is when you have a scheduled hit time. Like they say, okay, we're going to come to you at 714 to 717. And they later be like, oh, we had some breaking news. We had to switch our A. And so we have to bump you to the next one. And then that's fine. I got completely bumped. And then when I watched the show that night, Jake Tapper had a pre-prepared segment on promoting the reopening of schools. So as the single like source of authority on da data in schools and what was being happening and the only metrics you could actually use to apply there, I, my, our research basically said, no, it's not safe. It's exacerbating spread. 
I don't know who in their right mind would have ever believed that for some reason a virus stops at school walls of all places. Those places are a breeding ground for every type of infection. If one kid's got it, they've all got it within a week. Um, And it's been attributed to over a million additional cases in Texas and tens of thousands of additional deaths in one study. So when he saw that, he bumped me because having the only expert on that exists saying that the pre-recorded segment that he did was not supported by the science was not a good look for him. And ever since then, he's not like me and I've not liked him. He's a douchebag asshole. And according to people who actually know with him and even go to synagogue with him, but I won't get into that. But yeah, so it's not just the government. They would not be able to do what they do and get away with the lies if there wasn't media complicity. Now, there are some outlets that are really great at calling out DeSantis and his many lies. And increasingly, those are few and far between. And that's a whole other discussion we could have about why the media is so fucked up in its current state of fucked upness. But I think we talk about that like almost every show in some yeah, way, shape, or form. Just problem. a little touch on it. Yeah. But it's not but, all of them. And I think that there's independent media outlets like ours that are trying to hold accountability and working on transparency. Yep. And this is actually our second anniversary related podcast episode because last week we talked about the anniversary of Waco in the Oklahoma mm-hmm. City bombing which I was quite shocked to find out still has a ton of conspiracy theorists out there peddling the real truth. Like they're in some kind of secret club and they, and only they alone know what really happened, even though the government accounts of what happened are even differing, but they know the truth. They know the real thing that happened. And conspiracies work. They're secret information. They want to feel special and they want to feel included in something that is is powerful. And so people are prone to these conspiracies and they throw their entire lives away for it. And it's quite, it's it's pathetic and sad and tragic at the same time. But I've got quite a few of those directed at me, unfortunately. But uh, it's a very bizarre thing to be at the center of somebody else's world that you've never met and have never known. But there you go. For Legossif, he never lived to see the real legacy of what he did or the profound debt that this world owes him, which can never be paid because he took his own life. And according to his daughter, it was calculated and it was so that no one could continue to ignore the warnings he was trying to issue, which to me is even more awful. Because even his very last act of death was to try to ensure that the truth was known. Wow. It was the last thing he did with his life. And it worked, which is sad, too. (laughs) It's sad that he had to do it. It's sad that that worked and nothing else did. It's just, it's tragic. It was a tragedy. And the continued lack of information to this day about that accident, the lack of knowledge about who got sick from what afterwards because they never tracked them to find out or did do any robust studies. It's just, it is everything that should not happen. Just pretend like it's not a big deal. Like COVID. That's exactly how, yeah. And that's a scary parallel. The ostrich response. It is, which is part of the reason why when I was, I mentioned this last time going into politics, I decided to read the book stalling for time. My life as a hostage negotiator 
which was written by the FBI agent who was present for Ruby Ridge and Waco, because a lot of politics is hostage negotiation. It's dealing with hostile people who want things. And sometimes those things are power. Sometimes they are attention. Sometimes they are actual things. And how to be able to navigate and calmly and peacefully deal with those types of actors in a dangerous situation, which frankly, politics these days is very dangerous. It's a great book and it's very freaky. And I, we just started packing up all my books because I'm getting the hell out of the state. So I don't have it right now, but you should read it though. I forget the name of the author, but it's called Stalling for Time. My life is a hostage negotiator. And I think I'm going to just, I had a glass of wine last night for the gossip. And so when April 26 comes around next year, just say a moment. Wine and not vodka. Oh yeah. You don't want to drink vodka after watching that series. It's, that's all the liquiders do. Like they have no water, but they're like, they have endless supplies of vodka. But I'm a rum that's, girl. That, that's how vodka was invented, was purify <laughs> water. But anyway. Yeah. That's I'm, I'm sorry. If you're going to drink a liquor, I would much rather drink a liquor made from sugar than a liquor made from a potato or barley. But listen, that's just my listen, personal. That's all we have, okay? <laughs> but at any rate, there have been, I'm sure, many people like him throughout the history of the world put in these situations where they were the exact right person in the exact right moment or wrong, depending if you were to ever acts that person how they felt about being that person who forever changed the trajectory of history on this planet and he's one of them so say there's spare a moment for a thought for the gossip and for everything that he lost in the fight for truth and doing things better yeah all right, great. On that somber note, let's wrap up today's information. Misinformation yeah. with Rebecca. It's Jones. about Chernobyl. It wasn't going to be oh chipper. No, I know. <laughs> but thank you for joining us here today. Be sure to check this out on Big Mouth Media at bigmouthmediafl.com and subscribe. You can get a subscription to Misinformational and support the work that we do here for $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year. You can support all of the shows that we do here at Big Mouth Media for $19.99 a month or $199 a year. And that will keep us able to shine the light and keep transparency going and make sure that we can continue to have conversations that matter just like this one. Thanks so much for being here. I'm Dr. Cindy Banier here with the unflappable Rebecca Jones, Miss Informational, and we'll see you next time. Thanks guys. Be safe out there. Thanks for joining Miss Informational with Rebecca Jones brought to you by Big Mouth Media. Stay connected by visiting misinformational.com and check out all the great shows and articles on BigMouthMediaFL.com. You can also join the conversation with us on Facebook, Instagram, and the cesspool that's Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe to Misinformational wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.